This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Top of our two, Shana Goldman from The Athletic uh, will join me, amongst other things. We'll talk about uh, teams with good starts, teams with bad starts, uh, things that have caught her eye, and books and books and books. i got a stack already off to my left that i got to catch up on. I don't know about you, but I, I try to get in like about at least four or five every season. And I'm already behind on three. Ugh. So Shane is going to be joining me here in hour two. We can review with Matt Marchese as well. In the meantime, six games. Six games on the go around the NHL this evening. And our first look at a new rink. Uh, it is Mullet Arena. I love the name. It'll be a unique. It'll be a different atmosphere tonight because after all, uh, this is not an NHL-style rink, but nonetheless, that brings with it uh, some interesting things. Uh, Craig Morgan from Phoenix Sports joins me now. He's been all over the story um, for as long as it has been a story. Craig, how are you today? Thanks so much for doing this. I am well, Jeff. Always great to talk to you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm good. Always great to catch up. And um, I don't... I'm not one that likes to pile on. Like, I'm not just going to join the, hey, here, grab a stick. You hit the pinata now. Like, we all know what's <laughs> happening with the Arizona Coyotes and this rink. Like, it's it's just too easy, right? It's, it's, it, it's an easy one. This is what's happening right now with the Arizona Coyotes. They have a really tough situation. It's a really bad situation. You know, I think a lot of us are surprised that, you know, the Players Association didn't, you know, stomp their feet more and say this is unacceptable to players and they deserve more and blah, 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 blah. But here's where we are. Everyone's trying to make the best of this. And I want to get to the, the visitor dressing rooms here in a second. But from your point of view, as you walk in the rink, when you look outside the rink, as you talk to people in and around the hockey community there, what is the overall consensus about this rink and what the hockey experience in Arizona is going to be this season and probably for the next two or three? Well, let me start by addressing the first thing you said. I think it's fair to point out all the flaws here, all the problems, and, and even though everybody knows them by this, by this point, I think it's fair to bring those up in any discussion of playing at Mullet Arena. Um, it's also important to be balanced in your reporting and point out some of the things that might be good about it. And sometimes that's lacking in, in some of the reporting that I see, but with mullet arena in particular, I can tell you this, having been in there multiple times now, having covered Arizona state's last series with Colorado college, it's a terrific college arena, Jeff. The atmosphere is fantastic. Just the whole vibe of being on a college campus, having a student section, the intimacy of the building. I know that term has been used a lot, but the, the acoustics of it has a low ceiling. It's very loud. It's a terrific experience. And then when you look at the surrounding area, you understand, and this is something that I've been banging the drum on for two decades now, why this is the right location and Glendale was not. There's so much to offer on this campus. The vast majority of their season ticket holders and their premium season ticket holders live on this side of Phoenix. The offerings in Tempe are amazing. South Scottsdale, Old Town, is only five miles away. There's a lot to offer in this area, so it makes sense. You see what is possible down the road. Clearly, this is not ideal. It's a temporary situation. It's too small. There are drawbacks like the visiting locker rooms that we're going to talk about, but it's, it's with a goal in mind, and that goal could be you know, realized at some point soon. Well, let, let's get to it then, and we'll, we'll throw the pictures up here of the uh, of the of the visitors' uh, uh, locker room here. If you're watching on Sportsnet 360 right now, um, I, I mean it's an it's an easy one. Uh, it's an easy one to look at and say, "Oh, this is ridiculous. This is an NHL standard." You know, you you know, you you graduate to the National Hockey League. There has to be a certain standard here. We know this is only going to be for uh, for four games, but what is the what is the feedback that you've received so far been about as it relates to the uh, the visitors change room here which is anything less than spectacular yeah well I'm mean, obviously we haven't had any feedback from the teams that are actually going to use it but you know you can talk to a lot of yeah. people who, who probably don't want to be quoted who say it's 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 a joke visiting teams should not have to get ready in those under those circumstances and look I when I took the video they were just starting to set it up so you didn't see what it was going to become they will have, my understanding is they will have all the amenities that are mandated in the CBA for visiting team areas. And you can, you can find those all. I linked yeah. to them in my story this morning. The one thing that I've heard that isn't being talked about all that much, 
about that area is because it's sitting on the community ice floor, it's really cold in there, Jeff. I don't know if they're going to give those poor guys some space heaters or something, but that is something that they're going to have to consider because it is just freezing in there, and that's a tough situation for visiting teams to come off the ice after a period and then quite bluntly freeze their asses off. Yeah, I would um, I would imagine the Players Association is having a close look at this one. Uh, I would imagine visiting teams, and it's, you know, the Jets are, are hopping in, the Rangers are on the horizon, et cetera. Um, the Stars, too, I would imagine teams would be having a, a close look at this one. Um, the long-term plan for the visitors' room, like, when will that finally be done? And, and, and quite bluntly, what, what's been the holdup? For, you mean for the uh, the annex itself? Yep. Yeah. Well, it was there. There were a number of things. Let's 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 be honest. First of all, when when the situation reached an impasse with the city of Glendale and Gila River Arena, I think the Coyotes for a while really thought that Glendale would relent and take them back at some point because it makes financial sense for the city of Glendale to have an anchor tenant in that building. I think they got a little too far down the road and and they didn't have enough time to plan this. So that was one of the issues. You've also got supply chain issues. So some some of the supplies weren't being delivered in time to build the annex before the season started, including the steel, the construction steel. So all of that held the process up. But they say, they continue to say, and I've seen it, it's it's taking shape. They say it will be ready for uh, all of their home games after these first four. So the Coyotes go on the road for 14 games after this four-game homestand, when they come back, the annex is supposed to be ready. It will house the Coyotes. It will also house the visiting team. Uh, visiting tonight, the Winnipeg Jets, uh, and then the Rangers on Sunday, Florida Tuesday, the Dallas Stars on Thursday. Uh, okay, to the to the Arizona Coyotes themselves right now. So, listen, I don't think this is any secret that the strategy for the Arizona Coyotes is – you know, this is a team that's going to, you know, pick up as many young players as possible, young prospects, uh, and the team isn't isn't structured to be quote unquote good until there's a new <laughs> arena, and they have a number of years here to put all this together. And I'll I'll be honest, like they are putting together a really impressive, you know, the beginnings of a really impressive future. Should they be able to keep everybody involved and uh, also, let's not forget this one, draw the requisite amount of veterans uh, to surround these kids with. Um, from your understanding, that is the plan here for the Arizona Coyotes? Like, this team isn't going to really pop or be a consistently decent team until the new rink is built? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it, they're, they're different phases of this. I, they are certainly focused on acquiring draft assets as much as they can, just as, just as they were last summer. And, and we all know the, the prizes yeah. at the top of this draft, not just Connor Bedard, but Matthew Mitchkov, um, Adam Fentilli. There, there are some terrific players, at least some terrific prospects at the yeah. top of this draft. So they, they want to draft as high as possible. They want to accumulate. But I wonder, for instance, if the uh, draft lottery gods finally sh- smile on the Coyotes, something that has never happened, by the way, because they've never even picked in the top two, if they finally land a player like Connor Bedard, does that does that lead them to maybe inject some of these prospects into the lineup as, as soon as next season? I could see it happen. Dylan Gunther is pushing for a roster spot right now. I don't yes, think is. necessarily, yes, Jeff, that they're, they're actually going to be good on the ice because they put these kids in. I mean, you, you know what the growth process is for young players, but it could at least give Coyotes fans some hope seeing some of these young players a part of their future. They may still struggle. They may still get those high draft picks. Bill may still do the things that he's done for the past two seasons. But I think that could be the trajectory depending on what happens in the lottery. So that, that that's interesting. So let, let's, let's, let's sort of take that thought experiment one step further. And I think of, like, let's assume that the Arizona Coyotes win the lottery and they get to select Connor Bedard first overall. I think about Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins. And the first thing that, and listen, the Penguins were a bad team at that point. The first thing that the Penguins did was try to surround Sidney Crosby with as many veteran players as possible. This was like, okay, we have this, you know, we have this Ferrari. Before we take the Ferrari out on the road, we want to make sure that there's a number of complementary vehicles around this Ferrari so the transition from Ramuski to Pittsburgh won't be that harsh. But given the realities of the rink, given the realities of that situation, 
let's say Arizona wins the Bedard lottery and he plays for the Coyotes next season, will it be difficult to get a cut or class of player to surround Bedard with, unlike what teams like, and just use the Crosby example, unlike what the Pittsburgh Penguins were able to do when they finally got Sidney Crosby? It may be, and, and, and let's not I, – I just spoke to Sidney Crosby when the Coyotes went back to Pittsburgh and talked about the parallels here with what Pittsburgh was going through. There are a lot of them, by the way. Let's not forget that the, the Penguins yeah. had Mark andre Fleury and Evgeny Malkin already in the tank at that point. So the Coyotes – I don't know that the Coyotes have players of that caliber. We'll see. But attracting free agents to, to this situation, yeah, it could be difficult. I'm not sure, honestly, Jeff, that Bill Armstrong wants to make that dramatic a move. I, when, I, when I say maybe, uh, you know – take a step forward in terms of the uh, what you're seeing on the ice. I'm not sure that they're, they're looking to suddenly contend for a playoff spot next season because they have Connor Bedard. So I'm not sure that they'd be looking to acquire those sorts of players quite yet. I think the timeline probably syncs up pretty well still with the new arena, assuming it gets approved. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, by the way, where, um, what are the critical dates for that one as we uh, await to hear what's going to happen here in Tempe? And we're all, I, I think the majority of us are assuming that this is going to happen, but what are some of the critical dates we need to know here? Well, November 29th, Javier Gutierrez said it yesterday when he addressed media at Mullet Arena, is going to be the date at, on which the city council votes on the situation. I think there's another key date, November 22nd, where we'll know a little more direction on where they're going to go. But as Javier said, and, and these are the concerns that I've been raising uh, in stories that I've been writing, even if it gets approved, and, and, and again, Jeff, I, I do think it's going to get approved by the city council. I do think that they're in favor of this. And there, are, there are a lot of parties like the Chamber of Commerce that support this deal. What happens then? Yeah. Are there lawsuits from the airport, from Goldwater, from citizens groups? And also, does, does it go to referendum? Do they put it to the citizens to vote on it? I don't know where that sits yet. So. Those are the possibilities that could delay the process, obviously, even more. And that's that's something the league and the caddies obviously do not want to see because they want to get shovels in the ground as soon as possible. And let's not yeah. forget, they got to clean up that site before they could even start construction. Uh, the other thing that we wonder about with Arizona, there's, there's a couple of things, um, and they're both defensemen. Uh, one of them, Jacob Chikrin, and I also think that Shane Gostisbehere, although I think Gostisbehere is probably... My spidey sense is right, probably more of a deadline move, but it does feel as if, and again, Jacob Trickwin is still, you know, a couple of weeks away from playing, and this is the the wrist injury. Um, it seems as if, you know, once again, Arizona is very motivated to move the defenseman. There's a lot of interest around the NHL. Up until now, teams obviously have felt that the prices are too high for Jacob Trickwin, and up until now, Arizona has been quite patient in playing the waiting game and saying, okay, well, this is our price. Let us know when you're there. Um, where are the Coyotes at now on the uh, the Jacob Chikrin situation? The player wants to go. Uh, Arizona is happy to move him, but they want to get their price first. Yeah, I, I, listen, I think Jacob Chikrin has to play. I think he has to prove to other GMs that he still can play at that high level that we saw a couple seasons ago. They, they probably just want to see that he's healthy if you're going to commit those sorts of assets. Yeah. I know there's been a lot of chatter. We hear, you know, we, we hear things have heated up, things have cooled down. I'm not sure things have ever changed all that much. I don't think that the Kaides have ever received an offer that was close to what they want for Jacob Chikrin. You can, you can make the argument that they're asking too much, but Bill Armstrong's track record has been to, as you said, be patient and wait this thing out. If he gets on the ice and, and proves that he can be that world player again, we'll see what happens. Um, on the other side, they may have overplayed their hand and they may not get as much as they hope. But I do expect it to resolve by the end of the season. I just can't imagine them going through an entire season with this player in limbo. And then there's the reality that he has a 10-player yeah. no-trade clause that kicks in after this season. So a 10-team, sorry. So that, that restricts some of the, the possibilities for trade partners as well. So it's got to be resolved. Shane Gossesbear, I think you're right. He's probably a trade deadline guy. He is having a terrific season. I don't know what the market value will be, yeah. but he's 29 years old. Man, Jeff, can he quarterback a power play? He has been so effective. Well, last time I checked, come trade deadline time, everybody wants another defenseman. So I think this is going to be another situation where, you know, even if you see him as a, as a second-pairing guy on, on your team, if you have, you know, playoff, significant playoff aspirations, you know, Arizona is still getting first-round picks here. Like, they, they yeah. really and are. Like when you, especially when you have someone as offensive as Gostas Bear. 
his salary is minimal. They've already paid a chunk in, in signing bonus, yeah. so it's not asking teams to take a lot. The other, but when you mention this, you say your spider sense, but the one thing I wonder about, there, there have been a lot of injuries to defense, and maybe that's not all that unusual, but will a team get in a situation where it feels it has to make a move earlier, you know, sort of preempt the market? I, I don't know. Yep. That, that's a possibility, but I do expect him to be dealt at some point because he's going to be a very valuable commodity for some teams, especially in the postseason. Don't disagree. Uh, Craig, always great having you on. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your insight. Uh, enjoy the game tonight. Regardless of, of what happens, this is going to be the most unique atmosphere anywhere in the NHL. Enjoy it tonight. The Coyotes facing off against the Winnipeg Jets. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you having me. There he is. Craig Morgan from Phoenix Sports um, has been all over the story from day one. Uh, tonight, we'll see the mullet. The mullet is coming out. Uh, the mullet arena, the Winnipeg Jets are in town in the most controversial visitor's room around the league. And it'll be that way for four games. Jets, Rangers, Panthers, Stars, those will be the teams that dress there. Pictures available everywhere on the internet. Shannon Goldman from The Athletic joins me in a couple of moments. We can review with Matt Marchese. It has been an interesting one, and Maddie maintains... I've said the nerdiest thing I've ever said this week on the show. Really? Let's see what that is. Stay tuned. Hour two is on the horizon. Keep it here. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2 of the show. Coming up at the bottom of it, um, Matt Marchese stops by, maintaining that this week on the program I've said the nerdiest thing that I've ever said. That covers a lot of ground. A lot of ground. We'll see what that is uh, coming up at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime, uh, Shana Goldman is no stranger to this broadcast um, and no stranger to hockey fans everywhere. Uh, she's a double threat. She is a writer with The Athletic. She is also uh, the co-host of the Too Many Men podcast alongside Allison Lucan and Sarah Sivian. Shana Goldman joins me now. Shana, hello. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. You? Something nerdy? That could be so many things. I know it's uh, it's a shock. I mean, all this uh, ar- arcane hockey knowledge that kept me single for the majority of my life. Um, it does. It covers. Did I ever tell you this the story of my my parents? And this is this is where I really think that I get this from. You know, I, uh, what I get a lot, Shane, is you know how do you know all this stuff? Or how do you still? You know, how come you just have this like sort of driven hockey mind? And it's 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 been my life. Like I've never known. I've never known a time where I wasn't fascinated with all of this. Uh, my parents, when I was a kid, when they first realized that I had an interest in hockey, um, the Hockey Hall of Fame, before it moved to where it is now on Front Street in downtown Toronto, uh, used to be at the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds. And I loved it, but we'll be blunt, it was a dumpy, it was a dumpy old Hall of Fame right next to the, uh, the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. There were dual Hall of Fames beside each other. And my parents would literally, and maybe this is why they've never been on the cover of today's parent magazine, I don't know, they would leave <laughs> me at the Hockey Hall of Fame with a notepad, Shana, and I would, mind you, of course, this is the years before internet, write everything down, <laughs> all the stats, all the facts, all of it, watch all the videos, all the movies, and then I'd come home and I would ask my mom and dad to test me on it. That's the the formations of where I, and now I end up being part of, you know, groups like the Society for International Hockey Research, etc. But that's where the love of it came for me, like learning about hockey history and studying old, you know, old books, etc. and watching old videos. How do you come by hockey? I'm always interested in everyone's origin story. That's my origin story. I've just always been around it. And I think the Hall of Fame, which kind of acted as my babysitter now that I think about it, because uh, I've been there for like, you know, seven or eight hours at a time, uh, how did you come by uh, come by hockey originally? Well, that's a very nerdy start. Mine, surprisingly, is not as nerdy. Um, <laughs> I grew up with hockey fans for parents. I had a dad who was an Islander fan, and my mom was a Ranger fan. They did not watch games together um, if wow. their teams were playing. But yeah, they they did 
for like the 80s cup run, like I know they watched together and I heard stories of like, you know, the superstitions, like if you sit on this spot on the Ottoman, the Islanders would win this game in overtime and, you know, mom would be like kicking it out from under my dad and things like that. But when I was older, they watched separately. So I just started watching and I picked the Rangers. They were the easier choice for me. Um, but I watched Islander games because I, I grew up on Long Island and a lot of fans are Islander fans. And they always had something to say about the Rangers. So I watched all the Islander games so I could properly tell them why their team is bad and just annoy them. And then I just started doing that for all other teams. I'm like, well, you know, I like having that league-wide perspective because I would hear people talk about the Rangers and I'd listen to them. And even though we were rooting for the same team, I'd be like, you are so wrong in what you're saying. So me, the obnoxious know-it-all, had to get that league-wide perspective to be like, here's why you're wrong. Who were your – for me growing up, like I loved – I was in, uh, you know, born in, in southwestern Ontario, born in, in Toronto. And we would get – you know, this is the, you know, years before the NHL package where you can watch all the games. Uh, we would get Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday nights in our region. That was Maple Leafs games. Uh, every now and then we get to see a Montreal Canadiens game with one of the best, you know, um, broadcast booths of all time, Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin. Um, but I would watch a lot of Maple Leafs games and watch a ton of Buffalo Sabres games. Like, I grew up with the the sound of Ted Darling as the Buffalo Sabres play-by-play voice in my ears, and it was the French Connection, and then it was Danny Gare's Buffalo Sabres. Like, I grew up uh, loving the Buffalo Sabres and watching tons and tons of Maple Leafs games. And, you know, my guys were the French Connection, Boris Salming with the Leafs, Mike Palmatier, uh, certainly Daryl Sittler, these types of players. Who were your players when you first started watching that you gravitated towards? It was definitely like the Brian Leeches, you know. It was the end of his career when I really started watching, but then it was the core of, you know, the last Ranger Cup team. It was the Dan Girardis and the Ryan Callahans and the Henrik Lundqvist were the players, you know, once I had functioning brain cells and could actually understand hockey and I was like, you know, 12, these are the players like, <laughs> up and coming. And so it was nice because I got to follow their entire career and, you know, they were players. I definitely had bias about too, which is why like I did not want to write about the Rangers ever. I thought I'd be one bias too would lose my fandom. And it turned out I wasn't biased. I think I'm harder on them than most. And two, you, you lose the fandom a bit, you know, as you're writing about them, because you don't care how the players do as much. You care about being right and doing yeah. your job. Well, but those those were the players for me, and it's it's funny looking back on it, the Mark Stalls and Dan Girardis, because later in their careers, I know I was incredibly harsh on, you know, both of their games. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about books. I want to get into what's happening around the NHL, but you're like me, you're a you're a book nerd too. So, I always have at least a couple of hockey books on the go, and I always try to read at least four or five throughout the season. And right now I'm really behind. Like I'm already behind four books. So when I was mentioning this on the program, I think it was yesterday, there's a new one that just came out called Behind the Lens. It's mainly a photography book, but it's got little stories about each of the WHA teams. It's called Behind the Lens, the World Hockey Association, 50 years later. For those watching on 360, that's what this thing looks like. It is gorgeous and the photographs are spectacular. Um, also, uh, I have yet to crack the spine on a book about, you want to get geeky here with me, Shana? Uh, a book called Leading the Pack, 50 Years of Sudbury Wolves Hockey History. Uh, this one's written by Scott Miller. Again, look at that spine. Spine is still intact, have not cracked it. I got to get going on that one. Another one, uh, and this will hit you where you live, um, is a book called All Roads Home, A Life on and Off the Ice by Brian Trache who I loved and I still think is one of the most underrated centermen uh, the game has ever seen, ever, ever. As much as, as, you know, as much as you can be underrated as a Hall of Famer, Brian Trache is that guy for a lot of people. The other one is a book called, and I'm halfway through this one, so I'm kind of, kind of fudging it here a little. Uh, it's called When Canada Shut Down. It's a 72 amazing untold stories from a Canadian and Soviet perspective about 1972 and what I find fascinating about this one this one's written by Sean Mitten, Paul Patsku and Alex Braverman. Paul Patsku by the way for my money probably and I'm biased because I he's a buddy of mine the best hockey researcher I've ever met and I would think the best hockey researcher ever period anyway a lot of what I love about this book is 
that there's a lot of stories. We hear a lot of stories told to us from the Canadian perspective. We never hear from the Soviet perspective as well. And the Soviet perspectives on 72 are fascinating. So that's where I'm at on hockey books right now. I've got four on the go, but really I've only got the one because i got to crack the spine on the other three. Um, how many books do you try to keep on the go at any time? Over the summer, I definitely read more because, like, my whole vibe is just sitting out by the pool and reading books. Like, that's all I want to do. And this summer, I actually did not want to read about hockey. I was like, I'm done. I need a break. I read about baseball instead because <laughs> this is where my nerdy brain goes. Um, and so I have that. And my next book that I have, I have two. I have a sports book and a non-sports book. I have Midnight and Chernobyl, and I have uh, Arthur Ashe's book. So those are the next two on my docket. And then I want to get back into the swing with hockey books. I have the Rebel League. Um, that's on my counter to read. And I think I have Nick Wickstrom's book. Ed Willis. And- Ed, 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 sorry, Ed, if I can just pause there. Rebel <laughs> League by Ed Willis is one that I encourage everybody to read. You don't even have to have any interest in the WHA. It's just a great book with amazing hockey stories. So I just have to interject because when anyone ever mentions Rebel League by Ed Willis, I've always got to jump in and say two, th- two thumbs up to that one. Yeah, that was when I started, and I, did, I didn't get around to finishing because I think I was, like, balancing multiple books at once, which I'm trying not to do now because I want, like, one sports, one non-sports, so it's a little more cut and dry, and they don't, you know, like, overlap into each other. But that is on my shelf, so I am going to get back into the swing of it. But I was, like, you know, taking a step back, and I was reading about football, and I was reading about baseball, and I'm even I bought a book about basketball, which I never thought I'd do, but it was about, like, data in basketball because, again, as nerdy as it gets. Hmm. Um the Brian Trottier book, though, that intrigues me. I, I'm definitely going to buy that one for my dad for his birthday next week, and I'm going to, you know, just take a test read of it first. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a loved book, Dad. It's a well-loved book. Yeah, it's called All Roads Home. Uh, I don't know if you've ever spoken to Brian Trottier. One of the nicest men you'll ever... You know, the one of the interesting things about Brian Trottier is, Shana, is his family out west, so he's from Western Canada, and he's a musician, plays guitar, sings. His whole family, uh, like they had like a family act. They were kind of like Western Canada's Partridge family uh, back in like, the <laughs> 70s, and they would travel and do shows. And to this day, you know, Brian Trottier still performs... Um, you know, he'll tell, you know, the story about, you know, seeing Mike Bossy before he passed and, you know, playing guitar and singing songs and just like a really nice, decent human being who just, you know, happens to be one of the greatest, you know, hockey players that the game has, uh, has ever seen. Um, when you look at the, your, your hockey shelf right now, I swear we're going to get into hockey today. Just give me, indulge me (laughs) for a couple of minutes. If I looked at your hockey shelf right now, what would be on it? Like what jumps out at you as, as hockey books that, that you've loved over the years? I have the NHL, which is probably like the thickest book. And it's just a history of the NHL. It was something I read while I was in grad school and, I loved it. Uh, we were assigned to read, I think it was like America's League for football, and I wanted the hockey equivalent of it because I loved it so much for the NFL. So that was it. It mm-hmm. gives you so, so much information. So, like, yeah, you might want to, like, read it, digest, read it, digest, but it's still really great. Um, I appreciate a game as Darcy Genish's book? That's Darcy Genish? Yes. Darcy Genish? Okay. Yes. Um, I have Game is Conduct by Russ Conway because I'm so interested in everything with the NHLPA um, and, you know, what went on in the years, you know, in years past, uh, which it's interesting, too. Like, I just finished a book about baseball, and it was so much about Don Fair. uh, So you learn even more when you, like, hear about what they did in other sports or the past of the PA. So I think it's super informative to go back. And the Russian Five, that was – I think I read that last summer, and it was – one of the easiest reads for like a hockey book. Cause sometimes they do feel a little bit dense, you know, and sometimes it's like so many serious topics, but that one, it was just so like easy to read and so interesting that it took me like two or three days and, you know, I just flew through it. So I think that I cannot get enough content on the Red Wings. Uh, it's a fascinating organization, a fascinating team. Uh, I have yet to read Russian five It's on my list. I have the book somewhere, I think in the upstairs library, I got to get to that eventually. Um, but it's interesting. You mentioned game misconduct by Russ Conway. So I used to talk to Russ. Oh, geez, this would have been around between about 2004 to 2007. 
all the time. Because like you, I was fascinated with the Eagleson story and um, and what he did to the uh, NHL Players Association and how he financially ruined uh, a lot of players and which players stuck with him. And I always eyebrows are always raised when you know Bobby Clark bring, Bobby Clark brings him places. Um, but Russ Russ was a fascinating guy, and the thing that I always loved about Russ Conway was, um, you know, Russ, Russ didn't work for a huge paper, yet he was able to completely take down Alan Eagleson. And he did this with other, you know, uh, uh, sports industries as well, whether it's, you know, whether it's football, whether it's auto racing. Russ was like the proverbial pit bull on a pork chop. And he was, you know, almost single-handedly responsible uh, for bringing down Alan Eagleson. A follow-up to that, if you're interested in the Players Association and the dynamic between the Players Association and the NHL, Shana, uh, is a book called Money Players by Bruce Dobigan, which I've, I've given that. that book out to a number of people. That is an outstanding... If you want to like understand like the, the inner workings of, of how things work and where agents fit in and... You know the uh, the acrimony between the two sides, certainly between Bob Goodnow and and Gary Bettman. That's that is one that I recommend to everybody. Money players by by Bruce Dobigan. If you want to understand uh, how this league really works, that is a great book to read. Yeah, I I actually have that one. I read it, and I definitely agree with you that that's a good one to read, just to understand everything. I think it helps to have the background like even if you want to learn more about Gary Bettman there's the instigator that you know love him hate him agree with him disagree with him just to get the background of it some more like it it just helps I think and you can understand current decisions when you go back and read and understand like patterns and trends from all of those you know like higher ups in the league and PA yeah I I don't think what's the old uh, Mark Twain line hockey or uh, history doesn't repeat itself but sometimes it rhymes you know as context continues to shift um, history is not actually uh, identical, but there are always hints of it uh, pointing at where the future may go. Anyway, uh, getting sidetracked here. Uh, okay, so this morning, here you go, Shannon. Here's a peek into my life. So this morning I'm walking my dog and I'm listening to the latest podcast from you and Allison and Sarah, Too Many Men. And at one point you say, yeah, water is overrated. So if um, <laughs> if water, Shana, is overrated, where do you rate oxygen? I mean, it's important. They're both essential, but I'm just like, I, I'm i not a big water drinker, and my friends have bought me, like, the nicest water bottles to try to change that, and most of them, too, like, aren't dishwasher safe, but I'm like, this is not happening. Um, it just, it bores me. If you add, like, lemon lime, you add some, like, even a drop of Gatorade to it, just to add, like, a little flavor, some frozen fruit, like, I'm all for it, but plain water just... Yeah. It doesn't do it for me. I get it. It's important, and I'm trying to drink more of it, but I don't understand that people have, like, the gallons that they drink every day. That could never be me. I get it. It's important. It's it's the majority of you. <laughs> it's the majority of us. Yeah, so why do I need I more? It, it's important. <laughs> Uh, that line is the, uh, the product of a discussion that you and Allison and Sarah were having about Phil Kessel, and now that he is... Technically, the Iron Man in the NHL. Historically, no one has played more consecutive games than Phil Kessel, and we all start to, you know, really look at this, you know, this entire body of work that Phil Kessel has laid in front of us, uh, using one of the most unlikely bodies in hockey ever. Um, what are your thoughts on Phil Kessel, both now and the the history of Phil from the Bruins to the Maple Leafs to the Penguins, Coyotes, and now to the Vegas Golden Knights? Where are you at on Kessel? I'm a big fan of Amanda's brother because he, too, doesn't want to drink water. He wants to have whatever <laughs> snacks and drinks he wants, and he's still going to thrive. I, I mean, it's so easy yeah. for everyone to dunk on Phil Kessel, and I get it to a point, but he's a really good player. And sometimes some players just aren't meant to be the superstar players, and that's completely okay. Not everybody is meant to be Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid, but they're meant to be one of the guys. And he is a very good player to have as that, like, you know, top six contributor without being the star player, without being the driver of the line. And there's really nothing wrong with that. And I think in Toronto, the expectations were so high for him. And the same could be said, you know, for Boston. But when he went to Pittsburgh, it was really the perfect situation for him because you have the Crosbys, you have the Malkins, that 
he can just yeah. fly under the radar and play to his strengths. And there really is nothing wrong with that. Not Like I said, not everybody is meant to be this otherworldly talent that is going to lead the way and drag the team, you know, from the bottom up to the top. It doesn't work that way for everybody. But when you can get him in a situation where he can play to his strengths and he has a very effective shot and he's a better passer than I think he gets credit for, to be strong in the offensive zone and have someone that's, you know, giving him that defensive support, he's in a position to succeed. And that's why Arizona, a team that is void of a lot of talent, wasn't the best fit, but Pittsburgh was. And I think Vegas is going to be, whether he ends up moving back to Eichel's line or is a mainstay in the middle six, he's the kind of contributor a contender should want to have. And now when you can get him on those value contracts, Mm -hmm. it's even more valuable. Yeah, you know, the the one thing that became evident um, after the trade with the Boston Bruins was, you know, he, he he's not going to thrive as, the, because that was, you know, the Maple Leafs are rebuilding and they, you know, we all know about the, the two first round draft picks, et cetera, um, that went for Phil Kessel. Um, it became pretty obvious that that's not someone you use at the beginning of a rebuild or at the beginning of trying to create a championship team. That's like that last piece. And that's what Pittsburgh did, right? Like that was, that was the final piece of the puzzle before uh before cups like he's not the guy that you started with like i've always looked at phil kessel and said and we see this with a lot of players like he's a luxury item you know what i mean like he is a luxury item for a team he's someone he's someone that uh that can can score and a quote-unquote easy goal just by skating down the wing and snapping his wrist and it goes in like the point I've always made about Kessel is goals are hard to score. Goals are hard, and if you're on a team that has to grind for every goal, games are really, really hard. And it lightens your bench when someone, you know, in a period has two rushes and snaps his wrist, and all of a sudden he's got two goals. And the whole bench just goes, ah, okay, good. We're back in the game. Or, ah, we've cushioned our lead, etc. To me, that's the value of Phil Kessel. To me, again... He has been, in this generation, one of the great luxury items for teams to have. Like when the Penguins won the Stanley Cup, and you can make, and I think rightfully so, a case that he should have won the Conn Smythe Trophy. Sorry, Sidney Crosby. Phil could have won that Conn Smythe Trophy, but he would have won it as a luxury item. Like he's not the key guy that you build around, but he's the guy right at the end you're like, okay, the fact that we have this guy means we're probably going to win. It's like... I remember having a conversation. Here you go. Here's a, a Rangers, um, a Rangers Devil point, not Rangers Islanders, but Rangers Devils. I remember having a conversation with Bobby Holik. So Bobby was a standout as a third line center, uh, playing with the New Jersey Devils, winning the Stanley Cup. Um, actually, trivia note: the first time that Bobby Holik ever tasted alcohol was when he had a sip of champagne out of the Stanley Cup. Think about that one. That's for a memorable a time. Never had a drink Jeez. his entire life. Until until he had a, until he had a sip of champagne, he said he didn't like it. And he's not a drinker anyhow, so it's not that big a deal as I'm trying to make it here. But nonetheless, so I remember saying to him, you know, why would uh, how come it didn't work out with you and the New York Rangers? You know, with the New Jersey Devils, uh, blah blah blah, Stanley Cup, elite performance. Uh, nobody wants to play against you. Matt Sundin is trying to get you to the Maple Leafs because he hates playing against you, and he's not the only one, not the only center that doesn't want to go up against you. And, you know, he's, Mike Gillis helps him get that, you know, that insanely large contract from the Rangers. And I said, how come it worked out in New Jersey and it didn't work out with the Rangers? And he said, it's very simple. If Bobby Holik is your third line center, we're going to win the Stanley Cup. But if Bobby Holik is your first line center, we're not going to win the Stanley Cup. And I looked at Bobby Holik on the New Jersey Devils differently after he told me that. I was like, yeah, you know what? He was the most, like, he was another luxury item for the Devils. Like, if that guy's your third-line center, woof, you are probably going to win the Stanley Cup. Much like if Phil Kessel, when he's, you know, snapping in 20, 30, you know, 35 goals, if he's on your third-line wing playing with Nick Bonino, yeah, chances are your team's good enough, you're going to win the Stanley Cup. You see where I'm sort of heading with oh, the yeah. Kessel on this one as a luxury item piece? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's a good thing to have because, first of all, it, the more spread out your offense is, the better you're going to be. Obviously, it's great to have a 50 or a 60 goal score, but if that player's offense dries up or the defense knows to target them the entire time or they go down with injury, you're screwed. You need it that you have 
you know, multiple sources of offense. You don't want it that's too spread out, that you don't have like a you know one-star player. You don't want it that you only have a star player. You want that nice distribution of offense, because, especially because, you know, it's, it's the case of the Penguins, that third line's going to get softer matchups because, you know, top defenders are thinking about Crosby and Malkin, that it leaves a little bit more room. So if you have the depth that your third line is going to be going in those weaker matchups, you have a better chance of success offensively. And you can look at the teams like Tampa Bay mm-hmm. and players like Tyler Johnson, you know, as the Lightning got deeper, his role changed and he moved down the lineup. And that's a good thing for the Lightning. It's obviously tough for him, but, you know, if he's your first-line center, you're probably not winning Stanley Cups. But if he's playing in your bottom six and that's the testament to your depth, that's a good thing. And, you know, the same goes for a player like Yanni Gord. If he's on your third line, that's a move in the right direction. And that's why it's interesting when teams see Stanley Cup winners and hand out those huge contracts, you know, like a a James Mm -hmm. Neal wins playing with Sidney Crosby, and you think now he is the otherworldly player that's going to lead the way for your team. Like, that's probably not the case. It's just that they maximize the situation. And the same goes for the Blake Coleman's of the world getting those huge deals after being key players and they're getting paid like, you know, second liners when they're more suited to a third line team, a uh, third line role, because on a Stanley cup winning team, you need that depth instead of just a lot of players making a lot of money for like these roles. They're not cut out for. So the, the more, you know, teams can learn from the mistakes of contracts past, even just of the last couple of years, the better shape they're going to be in. So you can find that low risk, low uh, salary player like a Phil Kessel who can really, you know, solidify your middle mm-hmm. six. Dimitri Kristich on line two. Dimitri Kristich on line two. Um, let me ask you about the idea of fool's gold, okay? So I know you okay. spend a lot of time thinking and writing about things like this. Which team right now looks good but isn't good. Like, take us through the uh, the underlying numbers on a lot of these things. Who looks good so, but is not good, Shana? The Flyers. Um, they are exceeding everyone's expectations right now, and they even have, you know, at five on five, they're scoring like 54% of the goal share while they're on the ice when expectations have them closer to under 40% of the goal share based on their offensive generation, which isn't great, and their defense, which also isn't great. But amazing goaltending can change everything. The thing with the Flyers, though, is that I think is so important is it seems that John Tortorella does understand that this is not the way to win games. This is not the way you want to play, and there is a lot of work to be done below the surface because you can't rely on goaltending to stay at this level that long. It's not sustainable, especially for a player who isn't considered one of the greats just yet, like the Vasilevskis or the Shesterkins, you would expect that season-wide elite play from. But I think what's good for them is that the coaches acknowledge it, and they're still they're not just saying, hang your hats on these wins. It's keep trusting the process, keep building, figure out a way to be better below the surface. So when the goaltending does fade, which it's going to, the defense and offense can start meeting it in the middle, so it's a better you know path moving forward. And given their personnel, like it's only going to be so high, but – Tortorella is really good at making a team greater than the sum of their parts. So that's the team off the bat that, you know, they're really not as good as their record shows. Are the Boston Bruins as good as their record shows? Because right now the Boston Bruins look like uh, they're world beaters, 7-1. and one. Uh, Brad Marchand comes back to the mix last night, two goals and one assist. Charlie McAvoy uh, on the horizon. We'll, we'll see when he joins the mix officially for the Bruins. Um, are they as good as the record indicates right now? Yep, they're excellent. Um, you can look at any which way. Like special teams, they're crushing it. The power play is so good. Just got better with Brad Marchand last night. was a very good example of it because the Red Wings' uh, penalty kill has been very strong this year, and last night it conceded three power play goals because that advantage is unstoppable. But at five-on-five, this is a team who is playing strong below the surface and the results match. Sure, the Poshnok line is always going to outscore expectations, but you know when we look at expected goals, we're not mm-hmm. talking about finishing talent, which we know that they have. And when we're using public data, we have the limitations of not having pre-shot movement. We know that players like David Krejci and Taylor Hall are giving Pasternak even better setups to make the quality of those chances more dangerous than we can encapsulate right now. But that top six is so good right now. You have Jake DeBrusque playing on another level. Patrice Bergeron is 
Patrice Bergeron. Uh, Pashant is just earning more of a, a raise this summer. Krejci hasn't missed a step. Taylor Hall, we all seem to forget, was a heart-caliber player. And players like, you know, Hampus Lindholm are stepping up and, you know, playing to the defensive strengths we know they have. And he's also stepping it up on the power play, too, in a more offensive role while McAvoy's out. So they're setting themselves up to go on a stronger run than I think most anticipated from because it was just weather the storm and once everyone's healthy, you're in good shape. And instead, they're not weathering the storm, they're thriving. The only weakness you could say is goaltending. Linus Olmark's been great. Swayman hasn't. But even last year, it was kind of similar. Like, Olmark got off to the stronger start, then Swayman took over as the number one, and it can ebb and flow back and forth. And when you have a goaltending, you know, that construction like they do, where you have a 1A and a 1B, you can easily go back and forth based on who's hot. So I think that they're in a great position to succeed. Uh, let me close with this. A uh, quick question about the Oilers. And... Um... The game against the St. Louis Blues this week, and they just beat Chicago yesterday in another exciting game that you know both teams tried to hand off to the other uh, squad. Uh, but that game against the St. Louis Blues, to me, that was the best game I've seen all season. You watch a ton of hockey as well. If you want to weigh in on that one, that's fine. But the one thing I wanted to ask you, um, how good are the Oilers right now? And uh, when you look at you know, how watchable they are. To me, one of the enduring images that I'm going to take out of this week, <laughs> I just chuckle even thinking about it, Shana. You saw Leon Dreisaitl on his knees deke out Robert Thomas like he was playing mini sticks with the kids in the basement. To me, that is one of the... I, I may just like have that image in my head whenever I see Dreisaitl, maybe for the remainder of the season and maybe the remainder of his career. Uh, so I guess this is, this is multifold. Your thoughts on the Oilers... Um, are they legit? And your thoughts on Leon Dreisaitl? Leon Dreisaitl is such a good player who had some flaws in his game defensively and has really worked them out um, to become that all-star MVP caliber player. And it is tough to be that kind of player with McDavid there. That's why it's always going to be tough for one of them to win trophies because the other is right there and the votes are rightfully going to be split if things yep. continue like they did last year. Um but the Oilers right now are good, but they're not as good as they should be, in my opinion. And I am very tough on the Oilers always for a million reasons. But I think they need a little bit more offensive pop right now that, you know, Connor McDavid is willing this team into existence some nights. And so is Dreisaitl. And they have the forward depth, you know, that they haven't had in years past. So the top six is a lot stronger. And I think, you know, players like... Doc Hyman are great, and Kyler Yamamoto, I think, could have a breakout year. That play he made last night to set up Dreisaitl's uh, game-winning goal was excellent. Yeah. So more of that is a good thing. But it's the goaltending that still worries me because I think Campbell is very hot and cold, and I think that the Oilers just, they love this chaotic net-minding that most people, it's going to give them anxiety. And yet this is <laughs> what they keep going for. They're lucky Stuart Skinner is very good. The only thing I see when I look at him is why didn't he play more last year when Koskinen and Smith were struggling at different points and while Smith was injured? Because he's like this sense of stability, and yes, it's only been three games, and the more he plays, the more his numbers are going to sink. Obviously, it's just how it works. Um, but he really can be like, you know, the strength and net they need, I wonder. Um, and I want to see how Campbell continues. But that is the concern for me right now. And there are times, last night in particular, they were very poor defensively against a team that is not very good. And some of it was coming off the power play opportunities yep. that Blackhawks kept getting. But even at five-on-five, five, you know, they need to protect the middle a little bit more. So the adjustments they made mid-year last year, uh, we need to see them a little bit more and, you know, a couple tactics tweaked to tighten up just a bit more so there's not as much offense coming from like the circles as there has been this year. Mm -hmm. There there were you're right about that. There were a ton of penalties last night in that game. There was like the referees were putting candy in the penalty box. Like that was every time you look up and look at the screen, you got the uh the penalty gate opening. Anyhow, um I know you have a busy afternoon of drinking water uh on the horizon, Shana, so we'll let you get <laughs> to it. Um Thanks, as always, for stopping by. Uh, great job, as always, with The Athletic and the podcast. Too Many Men is Must Listen, along with Allison Lucan and Sarah Sivian. Thanks so much for the Shana. We'll talk soon. Okay, thanks for having me. There she is, uh, the great Shana Goldman. 
who stops by on a regular basis here on the program. Uh, gonna pause, gonna step away, gonna come back, and we're gonna find out the geekiest thing said this week. Uh, and I believe a public apology is on the horizon from Matt Marchese as well. And Elliot promises visuals of a Marchese haircut. This is all very intriguing stuff. Uh, Matty Marchese in the Weekend Review coming up in a couple of moments. Uh, keep it here. Merrick Show continues. Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on, this, uh, on Sportsnet 360. That's where we are. Thank you. Here we go. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program and the man with the uh, the sharpest feathers in town. Well, certainly the sharpest feathers at the uh, radio station right now. Is Matt Marchese, our producer. Maddie, hello. First of all, uh, I'm disappointed because I really enjoyed the Drew Doughty look on you. But now you're, you got the full beard, but you got the I play in the OJHL look with the uh, really, really shaved down on the sides and then the length down the middle. Which tier two team do you play for, Maddie? Uh, not anymore. And not any, not any good anymore either. Um, yeah, no, I think I, I felt like I had to do it. I just got to a point where I was just like, this is, this is too long. It's too straggly. It's awful and it was falling in my yeah, daughter's lap and no good. i can't do it thank you thank you, you. i know you didn't answer that on the text that i sent you, you but good. that's fine uh we can we can get over that no, no. um no okay no so, so what's up we can review time what uh what's spicing your chili this week uh well firstly you said arguably the nerdiest hockey thing that i've ever heard yesterday on the show are you ready for this clip jeff yesterday mm-hmm. are you gonna play a clip for me oh yes <sighs> okay here right. we go so every year there's a couple of different books that I always try to reread. Like at the beginning of the season, I always I feel like an, an obligation because of what I do to reread the rule book, just so I have a, a handle on you know what the actual rules are in this game and make sure that things come easily to me. I had to reread what? the rule book. Is the nerdiest thing that I you've do it ever every year. Said. <laughs> no, you know what? No, it's not. You know where I got that from? You know who told me? Because he does it every year as well. And I thought, you know what? That's a really smart thing to do. You know who does that at the beginning of every season as well? He told me this years ago, and I've always done it. Kelly Rudy. I think as a, I think as a broadcaster, you should probably know the game. You should probably understand the rules. Like, I, I, I really enjoy, like, my brother-in-law is, a, uh, is an official. So I like reading... Um, I like reading rule books and I like reading, you know, case examples of different situations. Um, I do find it endlessly fascinating. And there's probably a game show in here, or uh, certainly a quiz show, <laughs> quizzing NHL players on the rule book. How much do they actually know the game? Because if you ask them honestly, Matty, they'll ask you the same because you, you know, you, you played, uh, well, you made it to tier two, right? Did you know the rules? Of the game, like we all understand the basic rules, but did you understand like the nitty gritty of the rules I've, when you played? I feel like I'll maintain the majority of players don't. I feel like I did, but I know we had this conversation with Anthony Stewart, and he said like at least half the league doesn't know what's going on. That's pretty. No. That's pretty normal. No. So okay, it, it's no. still the nerdiest thing for me that you've ever said on that's the show. Not the and you, nerdiest. Yeah, Come on. I've 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 nerded it way more than that. Okay. I thought you were going to hit me about because the the other book that I read every year is Anatoly Tarasov's book, Road to Olympus. That's the one that I always read. That's that's pretty geeky. Ah, uh, but I still think reading the rule book is like I gotta oh, go. Yeah. I gotta go find Rule Seventeen A One and figure out why this don't was a slash. It. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I don't know the rule book just, enough. I take it to but... the beach. I take it to the beach. I get I get some <laughs> I get some coconut oil and I take it to the beach, Matt. That's and, how excited. And I everybody am. looks and goes, "Born he's to be the, mild." That's what you can call me. He's reading the rule book. That must be Jeff Merrick because it's not Kelly Rudy. Um, yeah. Okay, I need to offer an apology, <laughs> Jeffrey. To me? No, not to you. I, I, if I have to apologize no. to you, I'll do it off the air. I'm certainly not doing it on this show. Um, I got a tweet okay, who you doing? from uh, from a, a man named Tom on Twitter that demanded an apology after I said that Alexander Gorgiev was going to get lit up like a Christmas tree by his former team, the New York Rangers. I apologize, but I'm still not convinced that the Colorado Avalanche don't have a goaltending problem. One game does not change my mind, Jeff, but that was a pretty stellar performance. <laughs> See, I don't think it's a problem if you don't need great goaltending to win the Stanley Cup. Like we talked about this before, right? The idea of, 
you know, one person's ceiling is another person's floor. Um, there are some teams that you look at and you say, mm, maybe, maybe if the goaltending stands on its head, they have an outside chance of either getting to or winning the Stanley Cup. And then there are just some teams, we saw it last year with the Colorado Avalanche, that don't need great goaltending to win Stanley Cups. And Colorado is clearly in that group. So mm, I don't I don't I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a problem if you don't need it. I think it might you know be. I mean like if you if you don't need a hammer to do a job, you don't say, well, they don't have a hammer, they can't get this job done. It's like, well, they don't need a hammer to get this job done. And that's where Colorado's at, no? I think you might be right. I, I'm I'm the wrong person to talk about using a hammer because I'm the least handy person probably in the universe, but I mean I digress. <laughs> um moving on. Another story from this week, which was the biggest story, besides you being nerdy and me having to offer an apology, uh, Phil Kessel breaking the Iron Man streak. And I was reading Wish's piece on it, and we had Wish on earlier this week to talk about it. I mean, Phil Kessel is, he's like what I talk about, uh, Blue Jays catcher Alejandro Kirk. He is the everyman's hockey player, just like Alejandro Kirk is the everyman's baseball player. He doesn't have the body type that exudes, um, you know, peak athletic performance, but he managed to yeah. play 990 straight games, which I don't think, you know, and Shane Knighty said it in in Wish's piece, like if you told me that at the beginning of Phil's career that he would have done that, I would have laughed at you. Yeah. And I think most of us would have done the same, but I think what, what kind of resonate, resonated the most with me about Phil Kessel was when he was talking to Dominic Moore and, and Dominic Moore asked me, he's like, you know, how many, how many of those days did you get up and you didn't think that you were going to make it? And he's like, ah, a lot of them. But, you know, I just love to play. And that, to me, <laughs> is just such a Phil Kessel thing. And I loved every single second yeah. of that because there are guys, and you and I know this, and I, I think, I don't think a lot of the public has this perception, but there are a lot of people that play in the NHL, not a lot, but there are a few people in the NHL that play that don't really like hockey. They're just really good at it. And Phil Kessel absolutely <laughs> loves to play. And I, I appreciate that about Phil Kessel. So yeah. uh, congratulations to Phil is, on breaking the record. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people like that in every single industry. Like I think there's a lot of people that cover the game that have no time for it anymore. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that play the game that have no time for it anymore. I think, but I think that's true of every profession. I really do, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's you know writing, and I'm just focusing on, on sports here to begin with. I don't think that that is exclusive to, uh, uh, I don't think that's exclusive to hockey itself. Um, a couple of things on Kessel. So I was trying to figure out, so when was the last time, because you're right, like the everyman phenomenon is a great one. Like wherever, wherever Brad Marsh went, like fans right away were attracted to Brad Marsh because he just looks like, you know, this this lovable bear. Like it really works really hard and is squeezing the most out of, you know, Marsh will tell you, oh, I didn't have much talent. But he was on one of the most talented blue lines of the last generation, that Philadelphia Flyers blue line with McCrimmon and Crossman and Mark Howe and Brad Marsh and J.J. Daniel was the fifth. Um, but he was really relatable to uh to uh to uh to uh to fans the person that i came up with and again he's much like phil really known for his shot someone that resonated with fans and almost became the the everyman hockey player not that every man could shoot like this i think was brett hall right because hall had that um had that you know i don't want to say laissez-faire because he really did compete hard um, but he had that, just get me on the ice and I'm going to score a goal. You know, like the stories of, you know, Hull looking back at Scotty Bowman and saying like, like, imagine saying this to like Scotty Bowman, you just let me know when you need a goal, Scotty. You just let me know. You put me over the board. Just let me know when you need a goal. And if you'll remember Brett Hull's Hall of Fame speech, um, he dedicated a whole part of it to beer leaguers. Like, how many <laughs> Thank hockey you, players in their Hall of Fame acceptance speech? Well, it's exactly. I remember talking to Ron McLean about this once, and he's like, well, yeah, because like, that's, like, that's, that's part of the relatability of someone like Brett Hull. When he starts talking about, you know, the, the, the beer league players that are out there for the, the dreaded 10.30 start on a Tuesday night when they have to, play, play, have to go to work the next morning. I think probably the most e easily relatable player... Probably to Phil 
I want to, I'm sure there's a, another obvious example that I'm missing, but I want to say it's Brett Hull. The other thing about the Kessel phenomenon this week, I just wish it wasn't called the Iron Man streak. <laughs> like, I don't know who came up with the name Iron Man streak for most consecutive games. And one of the criticisms of this quote unquote Iron Man streak is, you know, hockey isn't a game you should be able to play 1,000 times in a row. Mm hmm. Like, I know there's a lot of luck involved for Castle, a lot of luck involved for Yandel, a lot of luck involved for anyone who's had those streaks. You know, there's a couple, ex a couple of, of notable examples of the contrary where I look at Steve Larmer, and he played a really, really hard game. And his consecutive streak was ended because he just didn't want to play with the Chicago Blackhawks anymore, and he ended it on his own. He's like, I'm not playing. These are my principles. I don't care about this Iron Man streak of consecutive games. And he played the game a really, it, it, it really, really hard. I just wish it was called something other than the Iron Man, just the most consecutive games streak. Because I really think that Iron Man is kind of a misnomer. No insult to either Yandel or Phil Kessel, but I, I think you know what I'm getting at here, Maddie. Yeah, tweet at Jeff Merrick for all your suggestions for what this <laughs> now should be called. Um, no, I, I think with Phil too. There's, by the way, there's some incredible Brett Hull stories like. I remember hearing a story about him when he was in Dallas and Ken Hitchcock was big on, on dump and chase and he would get on Hull's case all the time. And apparently Hull went in and this is, I'm hearing this secondhand, but I laughed. He went in on a breakaway in practice, dumped the puck in the corner and changed. And apparently Hitch just lost his mind about him doing it. Yeah. Like, yeah. So there, and there's another one about his, his fitness uh, training. I think Doug McLean told me that story, which is an all timer. Um, but we don't need to get into all that. Um, the, uh, the you know what? Hang on. He yeah, was, yeah. he was he was he was he was really he was really smart too. You know, one of my favorite things that I ever heard Brett Hall talk about, um, and we always think of that great combination of of Hall with uh, with Adam Oates. You know, because Hall would be, you know, just sort of show up in a spot to score, and Adam Oates would get him the puck. Like they had. We don't talk about Oates and Hull enough, I don't think, in, mm -hmm. in the history of the game because they were so dynamic together. And he would just sort of show up in a spot, Oates would put the puck on a stick and s snap of the wrists, and it was a goal. And Hull had the great line. And I've, I always tell this to my kids too, and maybe you can share this with a team that you coach as well. Sometimes the best way to be in the play is to not be in the play. You know, because Hull would be outside of all of it get to a spot to score. Oates would get on the puck right away, and he would score. But he spent a lot of time in the offensive zone being away from the play until it was time to be in the play. I, I always love that quote. Sometimes the best way to be in the play is to be out of the play. Yeah, I like Real that. smart stuff. I like that because I see Austin Matthews do that a lot. He goes even, even out of the zone True. to get back into position in yep. a different spot. Just get lost for a little bit. Uh, by the way, the King Rebellion yes. won last night in Georgina 6-3. We are 3-0-1. To start the season, thank you very much. Wow. All coaching, all coaching. All uh, coaching. Twenty-two goals in four games. Um, I think that has a lot to do with the forwards coach. But anyway, um, I digress. The Vancouver Canucks—they finally win a game, and ho hum, here you go. Here's the Pittsburgh Penguins. The day after you get a win, like good, good yeah. luck tonight, because the Penguins yeah. are a little bit perturbed at the way that they played the last two games against Edmonton and Calgary. Yeah, they're not in a good mood. And when a team like that loaded with that skill is uh, is in a sour mood, things generally don't end well. Now that the Penguins have, I don't want to say fixed, because I don't necessarily think it was totally broken, but they really stepped up their blue line. Like what Hextall and Burke were able to do, first of all, I'll predicate it on getting rid of the John Marino contract, but what are they able to do uh, to help that blue line this offseason? Because we focus so much on, oh, the Penguins brought the band back and the Tang is back and Malkin is What they were able to do in the offseason with that blue line, I still don't think they're done. Um, but what they're able to do was uh, was real good and really helped to shore up that team. And as much as, you know, re-signing players is going to be the story, I think the the additions to that blue line are going to be just as uh, just as big as the season progresses and we get into the playoffs. Um, NHL's hard, man. Yeah, no NHL kidding. NHL <laughs> does not forgive you. Like, you, you look at the Islanders, right? Like, who are the Islanders? Like, they have this... Islanders have this great game two nights ago against the New York Rangers. Well, I shouldn't say... Sorokin has an incredible night. Yeah, he was kind of good. Really good, too. An incredible night against the Rangers, right? Like, that first period, Sorokin was next-level great. It's like, yes, that's why... 
you consider him in the greats right now with Vasilevsky and Shosturkin. Um, and what's the reward? Their next two games are against the Carolina Hurricanes and the Colorado Avalanche. Like, yeah, have fun. That's tough. But the league's tough, and we'll, like, I'll be watching tonight. I know you're going to be watching tonight as the Vancouver Canucks try to make it two in a row against a, a nasty, ornery, pissed-off Pittsburgh Penguins squad. Good luck, Gabby, on 601 tonight. Yeah, I'll be I'll be watching because I'm a degenerate uh, watcher and gambler, so I'm sure I'll place a couple of shots. Yeah, I was gonna say gambler, one. gambler, gambler. Yeah, shocking. Hey, gambling has helped me watch more hockey. I mean, doing this show does too. But I mean, who wants to watch Arizona and whoever they're playing on a Wednesday night at ten o'clock? Not usually me. I can find so- I, I I can find something in every game that I enjoy. Yeah, that's fair. I think it's a, I've always maintained this. I don't care at any level. Um, whether it's male, female, animal, vegetable, I can enjoy something in every single game. Like Mullet Arena? I walked away from any game. Sure, well, there's there's that, but there's something on every single team, and there's uh, uh, either a situation that maybe I haven't seen before or reminds me of something else. Like, I know I've watched a lot of hockey. You've watched a lot of hockey. People listening and watching, like if you're listening to a show like this or watching a show like this, you've watched a lot of hockey. Like to be interested in what we do here every day as a viewer, as a listener, you've watched a ton of hockey. And you're probably the same way that I am, which is you can find something of interest or value in every single game, no matter what level it's played. Uh, some thank yous. Thank you to my producer, Matt Marchese. Uh, thank you to Shana Goldman. Thank you to Craig Morgan. Thank you to Elliot Friedman. Thank you to Lance Kennedy, the returning Lance Kennedy. And thanks to Jen Rolnick for making this thing all look good on the Magic Eyeball. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy Hockey Night in Canada. We're back on Monday.